Hello and welcome to our third in our series of studies on the Intertestament History. I'm Rob Cognum, Director of CMI-TV. In our previous class, we saw that the majority of the Israelites, and especially the priesthood during Malachi's day, denied that they had failed in their service to God when accused by God. Finally, at the end of chapter 2 and verse 17, God grows weary of their denials, and he says, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When you say, Every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, and where is the God of judgment? Basically, the people of Israel were saying that it's useless to serve God, because the righteous have no advantage over the sinners, the unrighteous. It is at this point that they have provoked God to weariness. Remember that Malachi had declared that his message was a burden. We saw that in our first class on this series. We now see that God is the one who had been carrying the burden of their rejection. People now declare their belief that God is unjust and unrighteous in chapter 3 verses 13 to 15 of Malachi, where we read a final accusation by them against him. We read, Your words have been stout or strong against me, saith the Lord, yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, It is vain to serve God, and what profit is it? that we have kept his ordinance, that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. To justify their religious life, they rationalize that serving God is merely a waste of time that brings no gain to themselves and it's better to do as they please, since God rewards evil rather than good. Why waste their lives in mourning, as the righteous do, eat, drink, and be merry? Now, of course, mourning means to walk around sad and very down and maybe wearing sackcloth uh, and, and being uh, mournful. Uh, it, it's speaking of a life of dreariness, of sadness, of, of no joy. That's how they're saying that the righteous are living. And so they say, you know, since God seems to reward the evil, why don't we just eat, drink, and be merry like everybody else and enjoy it? And so they have discussed or accused God of not being just or fair. of Malachi's day had just said to God and complained to him saying, what is their gain in serving you? What is the gain of knowing you? We might as well eat, drink, and be merry and we live like the wicked because they seem to gain. So these people actually have a very serious problem. That serious personal problem 
They don't know the true comfort and joy in trusting in the Lord because they are looking at the immediate conditions around them, their environment, their immediate circumstances, and not looking to the future. Certainly, many believers think that way. I've heard some express that. And Asaph, writing in Psalm 73, in verse 13, he kind of exemplified that attitude. For he says in Psalm 73, verse 13, Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. Those of Malachi Day had similar thoughts when in, they were in great personal trials or society had become so evil around them. As we look, even today, we look around, we see evil prospering. We sometimes wonder, when will God make things right? Well, until the time when God makes things right, each person can choose how to handle living in this type of world. They can choose one of two paths to be able to deal with it. The first path, that's taken by the unrighteous. The unbelieving religious person does as these in Malachi did. They delude themselves into believing that merely outward, cold, poor service for God should be acknowledged and rewarded by God immediately. If I did this today, God should reward me today. They are looking at the immediate. Rather than truly serving God, they are actually trying to manipulate him and their religion to reward themselves rather than fearing a judgment for their actions that were outlined by Malachi in chapters 1 and 2. You see, they think that if they say to God, well, you should reward me for doing these good things, they're really trying to manipulate God and getting him to do what they want. And there are many religions in the world that follow that exact practice. They say, if I observe this ordinance, this ordinance, this ordinance, this ordinance, and do this, 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 and do these certain things, God should be rewarding me right now. And if I'm not getting rewards, well, then something is wrong with God. That path will never lead to any joy or comfort or understanding God as he truly is. Beginning in chapter 3, though, God speaks to those who choose the second path. Those who do have a correct understanding of God those who have a true understanding of God's character and what he is and his consistency in that character. He speaks to them through a prophecy that defines the true reward God is planning for the righteous. God declares that the truly righteous, now it's a small remnant, you may say, oh, I keep hearing great things happening all over the world, how many Christians there are. Now, it's always been a small remnant. God declares that the truly righteous, that small remnant, will gain greatly when he comes to earth to rule as king. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we read God telling us this. He says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another and said, The Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him 
for them that fear the Lord, and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day will I make up my jewels, and I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. You see, these people worshipped and fellowshiped with fellow believers, and they would speak of the goodness of God and his character, how trustworthy he is, how loving kind he is, and how consistent he is for his people. You see, they learned the truth about God as they studied his word. And notice in those verses, it says, thought upon his name. This use of his name is very important because it refers to God's character, what he is, how he always will act, how he thinks. As you study his word, you can truly know him and expect his behavior, if you will, as God to be exactly as the one you have studied in the scriptures. This means we must believe his word when it tells us that he is righteous and just and not be influenced by the things around us, the circumstances. Next time you see the wicked prosper, and they do, and the righteous suffer, and they do, and you are tempted to think that God does not notice, remember that not only will God remember you, but he will write it down, as Malachi says, in a special book of remembrance. You know, we often say, I have trusted in Christ as my Savior, therefore I know I will have eternity with him. He won't forget me. Uh, there's a hymn, when I've been there 10,000 years. And 10,000 years is just the beginning. God will never forget you. But you see, in Malachi, he reassured them in a second way, besides just the promise of salvation to those who knew him. There is a book of remembrance that tells us that God will not forget his own people, you and me, if you know the Lord is your Savior. Remember, you are his precious jewel to be guarded and protected from the coming days of judgment, in the case of Malachi, for the coming days of judgment to Israel during the 400 silent years of the intertestament period. But also it speaks to us that God will not forget us. For in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we read in the New Testament now, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. God then says there is a time coming in the future when he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, those that served him from the wicked and those who did not serve the Lord. In verse 18, he says, 
Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked. That's God who will come and discern between the righteous and the wicked. Between him that serveth God and him that serveth not. We read also in Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. They'll be burned up. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts. Again, there's the Lord of hosts that we talked about in the last class. This is speaking of his judgment and his power to judge. Saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. That's the future for the wicked. Now, it's interesting. The prophet's language is very abrupt. He says, behold, the day cometh. It burns like a furnace. This abruptness, and it's very abrupt in the Hebrew, even more so, the behold, indicates the terrible reality of the picture. It's as if Malachi is He's writing down the scriptures and the Lord's inspiring him and the Holy Spirit's guiding him what to write and to think. And he writes down, behold, the day cometh. And all of a sudden he goes, wow, the day's coming. It really hits Malachi himself. And I think that's exciting because you see, as this suddenly bursts upon Malachi's understanding, he's not just a, a secretary or God saying, write this, behold, the messenger, blah, 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 blah. It's, he writes, behold, and his mind says, God has just told him, behold, this is tremendous. It's the future, not the now. Notice that God himself calls himself the messenger of the covenant or of the promise. It's the one bringing this promise, the messenger that is promising in a covenant. It's a reward he's promising for those he remembers. So in Malachi 3, verse 1, Malachi gets this, Behold, <laughs> I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, said the Lord. Now notice, the way before me. This is the Lord himself coming. This isn't talking about another prophet. This isn't talking about a, a, a godly person or a priest. No, it's talking about the Lord himself. I will send my messenger, and that messenger shall prepare the way before me, said the Lord, whom you seek, are you seeking the Lord, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, the messenger of the promise. This is God promising. God's character, when he promises, he fulfills. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold again, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. There's the power to make this happen. What we often forget is that the true reward only comes from God, and it will come only to those with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I hope you know the Lord is your Savior, that you recognize you are a sinner, that you've committed sins. And by the way, all of us have, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God that you need to pay for those sins. And the only way you can avoid from paying for those sins is for God to offer a sacrifice to pay for your sins for you, for me. Jesus Christ entered this world to save sinners 
from their sins. He paid the price on the cross for the sins that I've committed, the sins you've committed, because it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, and Christ paid that death. Once he paid those sins, God is then free. The justice has been satisfied of God. He is free to accept you as his child because Jesus Christ substituted his payment for you. The Bible tells us, for by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Remember the Malachi people were saying, I do this, 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 this. That won't do it. You have to trust in Jesus Christ alone in his salvation, that his death paid for your sins, that his gift is eternal life that you receive by asking him to be your savior. When you do that, you have a personal relationship to Jesus Christ himself, who is God himself, the one who keeps his promises. Now, a key to this prophecy that we've just read about sending a messenger before God comes himself, this prophecy, we need to understand the need to prepare for his coming. Remember, again, in verse 1 of chapter 3, it said, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. This is a reiteration of God's promise given 200 years before Malachi in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, where we read, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. Notice carefully that both passages, Isaiah and Malachi, speak of a time of preparation for the coming of the Lord based upon the words of the messenger. Now, in an in the ancient days, and in Malachi's day, for a messenger, this was actually speaking of an ancient royal procession. A messenger always preceded the king to announce his arrival. The messenger was to indicate the route and to remove any obstacles in the road. Get out of the way here, the king's coming. And so his job was to prepare, announce he's coming, and get those obstacles out. This prophecy speaks of a messenger just like that, that will point the people, Israel and us, to the king and his kingdom. Malachi tells Israel that they must begin to prepare for his coming, for in his day they weren't ready for him or his kingdom. It would take 400 years of preparation before John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 2, it's recorded, announced the coming king and his offer of the kingdom. Thus, a study of the 400-year intertestamentary period is a study of the needed preparation for the nation of Israel. Notice carefully, the messenger points to God himself and not 
in this case, a new or a better prophet. No, no, no. It's speaking of God himself coming. God will end the 400 years, called silent years, between Malachi and the book of Matthew with the coming of a baby, the son of David, Matthew 1, 20 and 21, born in Bethlehem. We've just seen that the messenger is to, to prepare Israel for the coming kingdom. A final thought about Malachi. It makes it very clear that the judgment of Israel and its preparation are for its good and not evil. In chapter 3, verse 2, we read, But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. Notice the allusion here is to the launders, the soap, and the refiner's work to clean, never to destroy what it works on. A, a, a launder doesn't destroy your clothes, at least you hope not. <laughs> no, it's merely to clean it so you can take it back and use it. A purifier is to purify the silver. It doesn't ruin the silver. It makes it pure. Therefore, what God is saying is that I am bringing these judgments on you, Israel, through Malachi, and on us, is to clean us, not to destroy us. Remember, in the first two chapters of Malachi, the Lord spoke out against the corruption of the priesthood. Here, God now gives his ultimate answer for that corruption. That answer, the Messiah will come, will purify the sons of Levi's, the priesthood, when he comes. From the writing of Malachi, the Lord preserved a godly seed, a remnant, in every generation throughout the 400 silent years. Just a reminder, we call them silent years because there was no writing of scripture between Malachi and Matthew, and it was 400 years. But when that silence was broken, how was it broken? By an angel's message, Gabriel, to the ministering priest of Zechariah. This is in, in now after the 400 years. This isn't Zechariah of the Old Testament. This is a priest in, of, named Zechariah in the New that angel speaks to the priest, Zechariah, who introduces us to that remnant on the threshold of the New Testament. Who is the remnant? Well, we're told about the shepherds. They came to see the Messiah. About Joseph, who is the, uh, if you will, the substitute father for Jesus Christ. Elizabeth, his aunt, <laughs> Mary, the mother of Jesus, Anna, prophetess, Simeon, and oh, don't forget, the wise men came to see the Messiah. They were Gentiles that came to see the Messiah, who probably read the book of Daniel, and when they saw the star, they knew what it was. All of these people were looking for the coming of the Messiah. They were prepared to look for him, and the Lord blessed them to see him. Herod, he didn't bother to go. Did the high priest? 
They didn't bother to go just to Bethlehem, a short journey, to see the baby born, according to prophecy. Never forget, only those looking for his coming got to see him. When we get to the study of Matthew, after we study these 400 years, the coming, Malachi, the coming Malachi is speaking of is the second coming of the Lord and not his first coming. Malachi is speaking of when Christ comes back and his feet will touch this earth and he will become king and establish his thousand year millennial reign on the earth. For Malachi 4, verses 3 to 5, speak of it as the second coming. Not at the birth of Christ, that was his first coming, but at the second coming. There will then be, for the second coming, a similar remnant will then be on earth awaiting his glorious return. If you've seen my series on Armageddon, I have a class that speaks about that remnant waiting in Petra to see the return of the Lord. They will be looking for him just like those did at his first birth. We read in Malachi now, And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes. The ye is Christ. Under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's significant that these closing words of the Old Testament, God refers to both Moses and Elijah. They first met God, those two, at Mount Sinai in Horeb, the mountain of God. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, and 1 Kings 19, verse 8 through 18. Both Moses and Elijah met Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. you read that in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 5. I believe they are probably the two witnesses of Revelation 11, 8 that will become before Jesus Christ comes to rule on this earth they will come during the tribulation. They are the two witnesses that are martyred. I do believe that. God follows patterns. Here's a final thought. Let us pause and think about why Israel failed and how we may not follow their path. We who are living in the church age. You see, think of this. Israel had the word of God, so do we. They had God's blessing. They had godly men. They knew their unique position in the world. They knew conditions of blessings and cursing. Yet, why did they fail? One, they got caught up in daily life. The book of Haggai teaches that, how they were so caught up in their daily life, their building of their homes and things, they forgot about the coming of the Lord. Furthermore, the people of Malachi's day, they made worship and spiritual life routine. Well, we got to go every week. Yeah, we got to do this. We got to do that. We should be rewarded for it. Well, no, we aren't. Yeah, but we got to just, just do the routine. Don't worry about it. Don't ask questions. Always ask questions. 
They were busy being God's people, but did not fellowship with God himself. They didn't walk with him on a daily basis. I, I use a phrase that I don't mean disrespectful, but I chat with God. You know, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Well, that interestingly, that without ceasing is speaking, it's based on a Greek word of a, a persistent cough. It doesn't mean you're going <laughs> consistently. It means you go, <coughs> and then when something comes, all of a sudden you go <coughs> again. You're to pray as you think of it and talk to the Lord because he's walking with you. That's praying consistently. They didn't have that. They only had a cold worship. And finally, they did not look for his coming. And what happened? They weren't looking for his coming. So God brought an interruption and judgments to the nation of Israel, and ultimately in 70 AD, that judgment brought the end to the nation of Israel at this point in history. Now, God's going to call them back, but there's going to be a gap in time between that we call the church age, and we'll talk more about that in our next lesson. God offered them a final time to awake before the second coming. And God, through Malachi, warned them not to quit looking for his coming. A remnant stayed true. The gospel was given to those who looked for his coming at his birth, and God rewarded them by letting them see the babe Jesus, and for some of them to see him walking as an adult on the earth. But judgment and wrath came to those who ignored him. Even though God is loving, he still must judge unrighteousness. Are you waiting and preparing for his coming for us? We in the church age will be gathered up at the rapture of the church. That's what we are to prepare and wait for to come. I would remind you of two passages as a fitting closing, I think, to this class. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 we read, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day. And not to me only, said Paul, but unto all them also that love his appearing. That means wanting for it, looking for it. With Malachi's end, so began 400 years of silence and waiting. Please join me again in our next class on the intertestament history. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily, and I will either see you here or in the air.